going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. If you're not where you want to be in life, keep going. Treat yourself like you're the closest friend you've got. Celebrate the magnificent creature that you are. Don't let anyone mess with you and your dreams. Least of all, yourself. Couldn't think of a better way to start the show based on the fact that we're going to get right into the election and social media. Uh, University of Alberta professor uh, Jared or assistant, uh, associate professor Jared Wesley is going to join us in just a few minutes to not only talk about the echo chambers of social media and how it's driving people nutty, but even beyond that is they're hoping to learn a little something about the different conversations and the different tones that are happening within each echo chamber. Because it's been a fascinating last few weeks in terms of how even the politicians are trying to paint the different discussions. Oh, social media, it's its own thing. We're talking about the real issues at the doorsteps. Then you actually look on social media and you say, see that people are, hey, I tried to bring this up on the doorsteps and nobody wants to talk about that particular issue. And it goes both ways. It's been kind of crazy to see. So this U of A team is hoping to see what the issues are, how fervent they are being discussed. And beyond that is almost the virality of it. So Jared Wesley is going to join us in just a few minutes. Also, sticking on the election topic, we are going to talk Toll roads. It was brought up a little earlier on. I'm certainly not advocating for them. Let me be the first to say. But it was something that was thrown out there as a possible idea that we could discuss maybe when it comes to uh, financing new roads or road expansions, such as, well, I don't know, Deerfoot Trail as an example. Did we miss a golden opportunity? Or are we not really getting to the issue at hand, which is, Maybe it has to do with money. Maybe it has to do with congestion. Dr. Werner Entweiler at the University of British Columbia will be joining us after 4 o'clock to dive into that as we continue the topic du jour of today being infrastructure. How do we pay for it? What defines infrastructure? Is it just roads? Is it hospitals? Is it schools? How are we manning and womaning those Schools and hospitals, those kinds of things. We've had some great discussions so far. Today, we'll get into the roads idea. Nancy Hickst will join us. She's got a a special story coming up uh, during the news, as well as on her latest podcast, Crime Beat. And it's all about a a crime here in Calgary over the last five years or so. And some uh, exclusive uh, tape that uh, we've been able to get a hold of there. So Nancy's going to join us after 5 o'clock. And we got to have a little bit of fun to end this show, I think, is we're going to talk laughter. Is it really the best medicine? Dr. Keith Dobson at the University of Calgary will also be joining us to talk about whether humor, la- humor and laughter can actually be uh, healthy for us. Short answer, yeah. I'll even try to work in a dad joke before the end of the show today, just because I might not be a dad yet, but I'm still the king of them. We're going to talk Twitter and the election next here on Calgary Today. All right, let's get into this University of Alberta team looking into the effects that Twitter and other social media have on a provincial election. And the person at the head of this is Jared Wesley, an associate professor of political science at the University of Alberta. Jared, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. You bet. Let's talk about this study first and foremost. And what are you hoping to measure or what are you hoping to gain out of looking at social media? 
Well, we're taking a look at social media as kind of a battleground for the agenda-setting competition that happens during election campaigns. I think there's a big misconception out there that election campaigns are grand debates between political parties about a specific small set of issues, when in reality, um, parties try to emphasize their own priorities on a small set of issues and try to get voters to think about them and talk about them in places like Twitter. So our our study looks at what policy issues are Albertans talking about during this campaign. And by looking at that, we can tell which parties are ahead when it comes to that agenda setting struggle. One of the things that I've heard on the election trail so far is there's two different battlegrounds. There's the one at the doors and there's the one on social media. Do you think that that's true? And do you think that that uh, that might be explained a little bit better as you guys go through this study? Well, it, it, it's true to a certain extent, but, but sometimes social media animates real-life politics. And take week two of the campaign, for example, where, uh, you know, an issue blows up on, on social media, Twitter and Facebook, when we're talking about GSAs and, and, and uh, student rights versus parent rights and so on. That transformed itself into two pretty large rallies that carried that issue forward and made uh, parties respond to it at the doors, but also in the, in the media and on social media. So I don't think that those worlds are nearly as separate as people think they are. Talk a little bit about that idea of, some people refer to it as a social justice warrior, but at the same time, there is uh, some, as you mentioned, a little bit of validity to that idea of once an idea starts to grow on the social media sphere, all of a sudden it becomes, uh, I'll call it real in real life. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep going back to what Stephen Carter said. Uh, he was the campaign manager for Alison Redford back in 2012. And he said that the lake of fire comment, he knew that that would, uh, that would have real traction in real-life politics when it made the jump from Twitter uh, over to Facebook, and then when it made the jump from Facebook to the doors, right, when people and candidates were knocking door-to-door and, and were talking about it. So I think it's, it is, social media does play an important role. It's not simply, you know, the, the empty echo chambers that people try to make it out to be. And same thing I would say on the other side is you can't make the the door stuff be an echo chamber as well, is, is that it can sometimes go into, and I've, I've seen a few of them already, where it's, hey, I heard such and such a candidate talking about this this at the door, do you think this is the real deal and asking it to social media? So it's become kind of an interwoven uh, map for an election campaign. Yeah, I think, you know, historically, political scientists, we've taken a look at the air war, which was typically fought, you know, on TV and now increasingly on social media as being very separate from the ground war, which requires, you know, an army of volunteers to go door to door and and figure out, first of all, who's supporting them, and second of all, to get them out to the polls on election day. But as you say, um, we've seen those those types of campaign strategies meld into one. And and what our study does is is take a look at, uh, you know, what what issues are parties emphasizing um, both at the door when they talk to people on online um, and when they're talking to the media and and are those topics resonating with uh, with in our case with people that are talking on Twitter I'm curious about the metrics when you're talking about this study and what are you are you measuring anything in particular are we talking you know number of retweets number of likes uh, number of responses what exactly are the metrics surrounding what you guys are looking into we are looking at every tweet that's used uh, that, that uses the three main hashtags for this election. Uh, so it counts retweets, and some people have asked, does it count bots? Absolutely. We're looking at the total volume of conversation um, that's happening about this election online. And we're feeding that through uh, an online uh, 
dictionary that's available called Lexicoder that classifies every tweet into a series of policy areas. So we're looking to see, are people talking about social and environmental issues, which polls and surveys suggest belong to the NDP? In other words, the NDP would love to have this campaign be about nothing but education, health care, social justice issues, as you mentioned. The, the Conservatives, on the other hand, own economic issues in the budget. People tend to trust them more uh, than the NDP when it comes to those issues. And again, polls and surveys back that up. So we're looking at the whole universe of tweets and filtering them through those various policy categories to figure out what are people talking about? And that might be uh, an indication of who's ahead in that overall agenda setting battle, at least on Twitter. One of the things that I've been saying on air for the last few weeks now is you can't really show or you can't really say that it's uh, one issue over another or you can't say it's only the economy or you you can't say it's only social issues. Uh, Are you guys doing a running tally? Like, could you say right now, hey, here's what some of the issues are. Are you guys going to kind of uh, unveil that as the uh, the election comes and goes? Well, we're going to be we're going to be spotlighting uh, what's happening from week to week uh, on your sister station, and and we'll be talking about um, you know that last week, for instance, the story was all about how GSAs supplanted the other the other uh, issues mm-hmm. uh, when it was come to when it comes to the Twitter conversation. Now that means that in week one, the the conservatives were able to stay on message, and the people on Twitter were were hearing that message and talking about the economy and budgets, but the oxygen kind of got taken out of uh, that that area. Of policy when people started talking about education and GSAs. So it wasn't a matter of, of uh, uh, simply, you know, progressives crowding onto Twitter and talking about things. They actually drew conservatives over to talking about uh, those issues, which is, you know, campaign 101. You try to get your opponents to talk about issues that voters trust you most on. That's mm-hmm. part of the campaign. It is amazing as we talk about how things can go viral. Well, this is almost a, uh, a case study for how virality can make Make or break campaign. Well, yeah, it's also a case study, by the way, in, in how parties have to be very careful when they release policies that don't fall into that category of issues that they own. So the whole GSA, uh, you know, spike in GSA com- comments on Twitter was not of the NDP's doing. It was actually of the, the UCP's uh, education platform, right? They released it with one small uh, bit of that much broader platform talking about GSAs. And uh, Twitter again seized on it and got the conservatives off message. Now, our research, we're about to reveal early next week what happened in week three of the campaign. But um, the, the extent to which that conversation continues about GSAs and education remains in doubt, right? And mm-hmm. it may very well be that the conservatives are able to recover and get back to talking about the basics of the economy, jobs, pipelines, and so on. I'd imagine then if somebody, you know, a political insider is watching what you guys are studying and say, seeing what the results are week to week, uh, in the UCP's case here is you'd want to change the narrative. You want to get back into talking about your strong suit and trying to get uh, NDP supporters and those maybe more uh, progressive to be talking about economic issues again, because that's the way you're going to be able to win an election. Well, that's the strategy. And it also, you know, may bode well for the UCP that they got the education conversation and GSA conversation out of the way early, because the end game in this whole agenda setting struggle is to make sure people, when they enter that ballot booth, are thinking about issues that they trust you most on. So whether that's something that happens in week two can continue to resonate uh, through week four is something that we're testing uh, in this study. I'm curious, the kind of manpower that is involved in terms of collecting all this data what kinds of resources are you guys throwing at this to come up with a as wholesome of a picture as you guys have been able to so far 
Well, I got a small research team, myself and a research assistant that came up with the theory and, and started to build some of the code around it. But the team over at Dark Horse Analytics, which is an Edmonton-based uh, data analytics firm, um, they've been doing a lot of great work, um, both sides of the border, U.S. and Canada, over a number of years. They're doing this work out of the goodness of their hearts, pro bono, and doing a fantastic job of providing those visualizations that you'll see on global TV. Fantastic. It's, a, it's an interesting conversation. And again, it's even been stoked on the campaign trail, like I said, with some saying, hey, there's two different conversations going i think that there's a whole lot of conversations happening and it just so happens that i think everybody's trying to focus in on one or two but like you said i think there's five or six maybe happening so uh jared i do appreciate the time this afternoon and the insight thanks so much you bet thanks We are awaiting possibly Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to talk about Jody Wilson-Raybould. Until that point, again, we're not going to put the whole show on hold. We're going to go right into the next topic, which is toll roads with Dr. Werner Antweiler, who's the director of the Sauter School of Business Prediction Markets at UBC. And Dr. Antweiler, thanks so much for the time today. It's a pleasure to be on your program. Is there some validity to the idea of bringing in toll roads here in Alberta? Well, um, congestion pricing has been looked at in a number of municipalities. We know it's being used in Stockholm and London and Singapore and uh, New York just actually brought it in actually on April 1st uh, to um, be uh, phased in uh, over the next uh, year or so. But essentially, uh, it's uh, something that uh, is a problem in so many cities that we need to do something about it. The question is, is tolling the right thing to do? And is it the right thing for each uh, municipality? So Calgary and, uh, and Edmonton, for that matter, are quite similar, and um, they have very different uh, traffic problems than, say, Vancouver or Toronto. So um, road tooling also comes in different forms and shapes. Uh, for example, uh, cities like London and Stockholm, they have essentially a ring toll. Basically, when you enter an inner zone, you have to pay for, for getting there. Uh, the same as uh, what is being proposed from Manhattan. Uh, other uh, places have uh, road tolling uh, where you pay for using a lane on a highway. Uh, for example, south of the border from here uh, in, in Seattle, they're using something called uh, an HOT lane, um, uh, basically um, a combination of a traditional HOV lane and a tolled uh, lane. Uh, and uh, so basically people can choose uh, to pay a toll if they want to go fast or uh, if they um, don't want to pay the toll, they can take the other lanes. I suppose the question becomes is what's the goal at the end of the day? Is it to generate income in some way, shape, or form to maybe pay for road improvements or that kind of thing? Or on the flip side, is it to deal with congestion? Yeah, actually, there are really two issues to, uh, about it. One is sort of the efficiency aspect. Now, can we make our roads more more efficient? Can we get uh, people to work faster? And uh, the other question is what to do with the revenue if you have tolls? Um, um, then uh, what do we do uh, with uh, this money? Do we spend it on building more uh, public transit, for example, which is precisely what they're doing in, in New York? Uh, or uh, are we going to rebate it uh, somehow to, um, to households? Um, one big challenge is that uh, in, in cities like um, uh, New York or Stockholm, uh, there is very good public transit. So people actually do have a choice. If they don't want to use the car, they, they can rely on a pretty good, pretty fast uh, public transit system. Uh, when you look at um, Canadian cities, uh, well, with maybe the exception of Toronto, Montreal, we, we don't really have uh, world-class uh, infrastructure, especially when you go to the, uh, the areas outside the urban core. And um, Calgary and Edmonton are very sprawling cities. So the, the problem you have is that uh, if you rely on your car for the commute, 
uh, and you really don't have a substitute uh, that you can switch to public transit, then you're kind of stuck with paying the toll, and you're, uh, um, you, you don't actually have really a choice here. And mm-hmm. so you feel like you're, you're basically paying a tax, and you may or may not get something in return for it. And that's the challenge, I think, in any kind of discussion about this, is if it's going to be painted as a tax no matter how you look at it. And so the question becomes, especially you mentioned the, the, the ring road aspect, is is that something that maybe the province could be looking at and saying, okay, maybe this is a way to help pay for some of these major infrastructure needs or wants? Yeah, if the, the motorists feel that something is really coming back to them in, in terms of better uh, road access and better, better roads, uh, better bridges, uh, and basically faster getting to work, uh, that may convince people to embrace that. Uh, uh, so it, it's really um, two sides of the coin. Uh, what do you pay? What do you get in return? And if you, uh, if you feel like you're not getting anything in return, then, of course, it's a very tough sell politically. Uh, so the, the, the issue with most municipalities is that they also want to pub, um, uh, fund public transit and, um, and basically use this money to, uh, to devote um, the revenue from tolls to um, uh, building everything from subways to uh, faster bus transport to uh, building uh, other infrastructure, uh, everything from bike lanes to, to other things that would help uh, speed up traffic for uh, urban cores. Uh, outside the urban cores, it's a big issue for, for uh, commuters. Uh, they, um, they still want to get to work faster, but how can we do that? There's something uh, called the fundamental law of road congestion, which says once you build a highway space, it's uh, filling up. Uh, after a few years, it's going to get to capacity. So you keep on building roads and building roads, and it feels like it's never getting any faster. And um, that is a fundamental problem that um, uh, building faster, better roads isn't always the answer. It's, uh, it is really a problem when cities get denser, when there is more migration uh, to cities and, and they get bigger. Uh, we need to look at other forms of transportation eventually. So you need to have a combination of uh, public transit uh, with uh, building uh, a road system that uh, can sustain uh, a better flow. And uh, options such as those used in Seattle, like HOT lanes, are something to consider in certain parts of the city where this makes sense. One of the cities that actually has one, of memory serves me right, is Vancouver, does it not? Well, we used to have some tolls on bridges. Um, that right. uh, Actually, the uh, government that got in uh, uh, two years ago actually abolished um, and uh, these were strictly uh, tolls to pay for the construction of the bridges. They were not meant, meant to control the traffic flow or, or ease road congestion. However, uh, the mayors of uh, Metro Vancouver got together uh, uh, two years ago and decided to investigate the possibility of road tolling. And the Mayor's Commission actually delivered a report last year that actually suggested uh, several options that could be used to um, introduce uh, dynamic uh, pricing into the city. So the idea is that once you introduce a price on a road, you can manage uh, to shift traffic from the peak to the, the, the more the off-peak hours so that people who don't need to go during rush hour are facing an incentive to switch their commute to a different time of day when it's not so congested. Uh, and these methods uh, are used uh, in some places. For example, the HOT lanes in uh, Seattle, they have a, a time-varying uh, price, so basically you pay more during rush hour and nothing overnight. Uh, and uh, so basically by, by adjusting it uh, based on the actual traffic flow, you can manage uh, the, the use of these lanes quite effectively.
Dr. Werner Antweiler joining us on the program to talk a uh, little infrastructure, toll roads in particular. Doctor, I do appreciate the time. Got to cut you short, though, because the prime minister has stood up in front of the media and is answering uh, to what has been uh, talked about over the last half hour or so. He's not only kicking out former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould, but also fellow ex-cabinet minister Jane Philpott out of the Liberal caucus. All right, let us uh, let us get to the story of the day, and that is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau kicking both former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould and fellow ex-cabinet minister Jane Philpott out of the Liberal caucus. Joining us now, Global News reporter David Aiken. David, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, no problem. No, a very big day on Parliament Hill, and uh, we had emergency caucus meetings. We had, you know, this got lost. We had another document dump from Gerald Butts, the Prime Minister's uh, friend and uh, former principal secretary. He dropped a whole load of, quote, evidence in front of the Justice Committee, but none of that mattered by the end of the day. There was the Prime Minister telling his caucus that uh, he had, after consulting with his caucus, decided to remove both Wilson-Raybould and Philpott, basically saying the trust had gone. And we'd heard, we've been hearing that for the last three or four days from Liberals. The last straw for Wilson-Raybould was this audio tape, and you probably heard mm-hmm. it. It came out last week. This was a tape Wilson-Raybould made with Michael Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council. She made it last December. She never told Wernick about it. She never told anybody about it, and then just dropped it last week. And that tape supported her accusations that the Prime Minister himself was interfering in a court case inappropriately. The Prime Minister today said that tape, that, that, that she did that, was, quote, unconscionable. So that was the last straw for Wilson-Raybould. The last straw for Philpott was a media interview that she gave to McLean's magazine a couple of weeks ago. And remember, Philpott quit a couple of weeks after Wilson-Raybould quit in support of Wilson-Raybould, but also because she objected to the way decisions were being made. So this McLean's interview, she says to the McLean's reporter, among other things, there's more to come. There's lots more to say. And liberal MPs have basically taken that as a threat, that the two of them together were going to continue to damage the liberal brand, damage the credibility of the party leader, Justin Trudeau, and they were not going to put up with that, and that's why they are now ex-liberal MPs. It's fascinating that way you mentioned that, David, the more to come part. That was a part of Jody Wilson-Raybould's tweet as well. I don't know if there's anything to read into that, but maybe this is something that, again, maybe uh, gives a little bit of validity to that idea of, hey, they are together and they are going to, they've got something, whether it's up their sleeves or they've got something coming. Yeah, they're they're certainly good friends, the two of them, and they've Mm -hmm. supported each other all through their their couple of years in government. Um, But we'll see what happens now. Uh, Philpott has just put out a a statement. It's on Twitter. You can read it if you'd like. Uh, You know, and she's very gracious. Uh, You know, we're we're not sure. She doesn't hint at what she's going to do next. But on Jody Wilson-Raybould's Twitter feed, there's just this more to come. I think that if Wilson-Raybould, who was a politician before she became a liberal, she was a politician in indigenous politics. She was the regional chief for the associate, uh, the Assembly of First Nations. Right. And uh, so she's sort of been a political animal, but in a different form. My thinking is that in her riding in Vancouver, Granville, she could win as an independent. I don't mm-hmm. see her running as a New Democrat, maybe a Green, uh, but I think she's a liberal. And she said as much, and so is Philpott. So Wilson-Raybould, I think, can run probably win as an independent if she'd like to this this uh, fall. Philpott's a different matter. Philpott's from a part of uh, sort of the GTA, Greater Toronto Area, north of Toronto, where she was going to be under pressure from the Conservatives in any event. It's sort of that ring around Toronto where you have a lot of blue voters, small-c Conservatives. As an independent, I don't think she has a hope. Would she cross the floor? 
I don't think so. She, in that McLean's interview, talked about how proud she was to be a liberal, believes in liberal values, and so on and so on. She doesn't seem the type. So I think this may be the end for Phil Pot's political career. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, I would say stay tuned. More to come, as she said in her tweet. The interesting thing as well with uh, what Justin Trudeau had to say was he focused a lot on that unconscionable aspect of how it was recorded, not really talking about the context, uh, context of that actual audio recording. Right, and so we're, we're uh, it's the, this is still a developing story here in Ottawa. It's, uh, it's only seven fifteen in the evening. Mm-hmm. We're going to hear from Andrew Shear. We're going to, and of course, we've been hearing from other liberals. Of course, we're all supportive of their prime minister's decision. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of things that people are going to point out Trudeau did not address, and he still has a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Among other things, I mentioned that document dump we had from Butts today. Well, what what that includes is some notes of conversations between the prime minister and Jody Wilson Raybould and which Wilson-Raybould is very direct with the Prime Minister. And this is back in December, saying, you're, you're letting me go because I won't do what you want on SNC-Lavalin. He's going, no, no, no. And then he meant, don't worry, just take one for the team, essentially. He huh. says, there's an election in the fall and everything's fresh again. And so this raises some questions about, you know, what Trudeau has told us all along. And you're going to hear that from the Conservatives. They're going to say Trudeau has not been telling the truth. He's got lots of holes in his story. And they're going to use this against him. So... Trudeau thinks today he's sort of helping with party unity and setting his party back again. And I think he may be. It's, it's probably a step he had to take. But there's still going to be liberals, let alone conservatives and Democrats, who say, wait a minute, there's questions here. I'm still not happy about this. And among other things, Mr. Feminist Prime Minister who supports reconciliation, you've just fired the country's first ever indigenous female justice minister. The mm. symbolism is going to be hard for him to square. Absolutely. David, I appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. No problem. Cheers. Global News reporter David Aiken on the latest in Ottawa's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau again kicking out both former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott out of the Liberal Caucus. All right, next topic of discussion. It is going to be a focal point for the Global News Hour at 6, and it's all about... This last audition made by Shannon Medill. Now, if the name rings a bell, she uh, mysteriously disappeared a few years ago. Bring us more on the story as part of her podcast called Crime Beat. Nancy X joining us now. Nancy, thanks so much for the time as always. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Let's walk through the podcast episode first and give us a little bit of a synopsis. So Shannon Medill was an aspiring actress. She kind of had everything going for her. You know, she had just done an audition for a TV series and she was, you know, getting ready to move. She had actually recently uh, split up with her husband. So she was getting ready to move to Edmonton. And then she just vanished in 2014 in Calgary, just disappeared. So a short time later, her family called police. And then uh, there was a plea made to the public, both by police and, you know, the family. They had everybody at Calgary Police Headquarters on stage. Um, Aaron uh, Medill, Shannon's sister, made uh, the plea to the public. And, you know, her mom, dad, brothers, uh, husband, they all stood together on stage trying to get any information they could could because this was not normal um and for seven months they searched and you know there was it was like a roller coaster for this poor family just trying to figure out what had happened to shannon 
this has been the first time actually that you and I have been able to talk about the podcast on air since you launched it. And uh, you and I have been uh, in court together. We've covered crimes together. And so it's always fascinating to me is being able to give a lot of context behind the scenes to the stories. That, I mean, sometimes it feels like we don't get to give you the full story behind the scenes on some of these things during a two and a half minute TV story or 35 second radio story. And judging from what I've heard already through the podcast is you really get to dive in deep. How's that experience been for you? Well, you know, there's so much work that goes into covering a single story. You know, if it's something that we're really investigating and really researching, you know, you could be spending weeks on a single story. Typically, most stories you spend eight hours gathering and then put together a two minute story. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many things that people don't get to know or, or realize that you're doing behind the scenes when you're knocking on you know, an offender's door and trying to see if they have something to say or when you're trying to hold people accountable Um, or just those, you know, extra moments uh, with the victim's families or some extra insight into the stories through police. All of these different things are happening behind the scenes and this podcast is allowing me to share that information. So, you know, you're really getting a behind the scenes look on the crime beat. And, you know, like you said, we've covered a lot of stories together. and, and it's just a different perspective. You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of podcasts out there that just kind of put the story out there. And, you know, those are really great. What I like when I'm listening to a podcast is to hear um, a story told by a journalist. That's, it's just because I'm a journalist. I like hearing stories told by journalists. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always supportive of um, keeping journalism alive, obviously. So I think there's something to be said for having everything really, really accurate, very fact based and um so if you are tuning into the new podcast crime beat you can be rest assured that everything is very accurate i've double triple checked everything and you know there's a really strong emphasis on on providing that voice to the victims families Mm -hmm. And not only that, but also giving a little bit of context. And the one that always, that's going to stick in my mind for a while is I dodged a bullet twice. Like that one was one of those moments where I don't remember the story at all. But you always hear those stories of uh, where it's oh, a close call for this person or there is this incident and, and then it goes away. And that was a story where you brought it back in with the hey, life did go on for these people who escaped death, in that case, twice. Well, you know what's interesting? I have been a crime reporter for more than 20 years. And people, actually, somebody said to me yesterday, well, aren't you going to run out of stories to tell? I can tell you, I have got a lot of stories to tell. (laughs) No, there is no way I'm going to run out of stories to tell. And the episode that you're talking about is episode two, I dodged a bullet. I take you back and you actually will hear how I became a crime reporter. And, you know, it's not some really (laughs) planned thing. You know, I just really always was passionate about covering hard news stories. Mm. And my boss at the time recognized that and gave me an opportunity. And then once I started that, it's just become a a real passion for me to cover. So each of the episodes, you're going to hear a little something about me that maybe you didn't know and maybe you don't care about that but it is a way for me to give that personal perspective and and invite you in like as if I'm taking you by the hand and and guiding you through the story as I saw it when I was covering it on the crime beat. Nancy thanks so much for giving us a little bit of insight into the latest episode that dropped today. Thank you so much for having me I've been looking forward to chatting about this with you for some time so thank you.
story that has been making waves and lasted a while here surrounds Drayton Valley Devon UCP candidate Mark Smith. He was the education critic, in fact. And this was taken, uh, this has been really gaining a lot of steam on social media lately uh, over the last couple of hours. And here's uh, the audio that has been uh, that has been posted. What is love? You know, uh, it's all around you. I think there's a, a real misguided sense of when we try to understand what love is. Um, you know, we were just at the pro-life conference here, and there are some people that would argue that it is a more loving thing to abort your child than to bring it in unloved into the world. That's love. It's loving to abort your child, to kill your child, rather than to have it born and maybe not have a perfect life. I mean, Robert Latimer murdered his, his daughter and called it love. You don't have to watch any TV for any length of time today where you don't see on the TV programs them trying to tell you that homosexuality and homosexual love is good love. Heck, there are even people out there. I could take you, I could take you to places uh, on the website, I'm sure, where you could find out that there's a, that where, where pedophilia is, is love. What? And, of course, the initial reaction is, listen, listen to him say homosexual love isn't real love and is akin to pedophilia. Mr. Smith has uh, put together a... Uh, reaction and an apology in a statement saying, while I don't specifically recall the comments in question, I believe they are from many years ago from before I was elected. I did not say that love between same-sex couples was not love. I merely remarked on media commentary. That said, I regret how my commentary was framed at the time. Of course, I do not believe that homosexuality is akin to pedophilia. I unequivocally apologize if anyone was offended or hurt. Obviously, that would never have been my intention. Our leader and party have been clear. It doesn't matter who you love or how you worship All are welcome in our party, and I am fully supportive of that. Albertans are tired of revisiting old divisive debates from many years prior. Our focus is on reigniting our economy in order to get Alberta back to work. I have my thoughts on on that statement. But again, from what I understand, according to uh, reporters who've been asking Jason Kenney about it, saying... Jason's not going to be pulling Mark Smith out of the election. And even Charles Adler taking to Twitter saying, Kenny appears to be standing by Mark Smith. This is a dark day for human decency in Canadian politics. No mainstream political leader who I have known, federal or provincial, aspiring to be the head of government would be endorsing this candidacy. I hope Jason Kenny changes his mind. I am curious because this is much akin to Lake of Fire, dare I say that, with the leader of that party now being a host on this radio station. But is this that moment? I don't know. The question, though, does come to mind of what we stand for as Albertans. And a dear friend of mine who I've known since grade seven, who doesn't post on on politics at all, went on a really, really well-stated and well-thought-out 
uh, Facebook post today, and she's given me the the uh, honor to read it because I think it is uh, where a lot of, especially young families, are thinking about this election campaign. She says, I usually loathe over sharing on social media and throwing your opinion to the wolves. However, I'm a born and raised Albertan. I live and work at a nonprofit in a city I adore. I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I'm gay. All three have been threatened by a party running in this provincial election. Will the province be in debt the next however many years? Yes, but if it means more teachers and classrooms for my children, I'm okay with it. If it means more medical services for myself and aging family members, I'm okay with it. Will the carbon tax cost industry and some families more financial strain? Yes, but if it helps in creating a greener tomorrow for my grandchildren, I'm okay with it. Will queer kids who aren't lucky enough to have a supportive family like I did, like my wife did, have a safe place and be assured a safe place in GSAs and not potentially be kicked out of their homes or worse? Yes. Would be would we be assured women will have the right to choice when it comes to their own bodies? Yes. Do I understand pipelines and rail lines and all the rest? Nope. And I'll be the first to admit it. But I cannot even fathom lending my vote to a party who, in my opinion, isn't bringing this province into the future, but would be moving it backwards. Read this. Don't. Disagree. Don't. Get yourself informed. Talk to the loved ones. Read party platforms. But get off your hind end on April 16th and take the five minutes to vote. Make your voice heard. Couldn't have said it better, my friend. All right, let's lighten things up to end the show today. And we're going to talk a little bit about the benefits of humor and laughter. Yes, yesterday was April Fool's Day. I chose not to try to fool you with anything, mainly because apparently the rule is you can't do anything past noon. So I was kind of out uh, out of luck on that front. Maybe one day I'll host a morning show or co-host with Gordon Sue one day, and then we can have some fun with it. On that note, though... I think there's some science behind the idea of the health benefits of humor and laughter. Dr. Keith Dobson's a professor in the Department of Psychology, Depression at the Depression Clinic at the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Dobson, thanks so much for the time this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Is there a method to the madness in terms of thinking that there is something positive to come out of laughter? Oh, absolutely. There's a whole study of laughter called gelatology. Uh, so it's actually a science of psychology related to laughter and its effects. And we know there actually are a whole number of positive effects associated with laughter. Talk a little bit about the, the actual science behind it and what kinds of things, it being whether it's smiling or laughing, uh, can bring to the body. Yeah, so, so most of the research that's been done has either been looking at people who tend to laugh or actually studies where people are induced to laugh, you know, sort of encouraged by looking at films or videos or, or told jokes, that kind of thing, or just simply encouraged to laugh out loud and then looking at the effects. And some of the effects include some uh, psychological effects, so things like reducing negative emotions. It's almost impossible, in fact, to feel anxious or depressed or angry when you're laughing. So we know that. But we also know that there are biological effects. So, for example, there's research that supports the idea that laughing increases the release of endorphins, which are natural chemicals in the body that promote a sense of well-being and relieve stress. And, in fact, endorphins are associated with reduced pain sensation. So there has been research looking at um, people induced to laugh as a way to reduce pain. 
I know that there's a lot of talk about mental health, and that's got to be mm-hmm. a big factor in all of this as well, as if you're constantly uh, down in the dumps, if depression is a big uh, big problem inside, yeah. uh, you've got to be able to, uh, for every, as I said before we hit the air, is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yeah, one of the interesting things about laughter, if you think about the nature of jokes, oftentimes they're set up in a certain way, and so they create a kind of expectation, but they become funny because the very last sentence sort of flips the situation on its head or shows something that sort of was unexpected, and and because of that, it it becomes funny. So it actually is associated with cognitive flexibility, too. You know, the ability to take different perspectives, look at the same situation different ways, uh, and one of those ways hopefully being a funny one. I suppose a lot of it, too, has to do with the echo chamber idea as well, as if you're constantly bombarding yourself with, you know, whether, especially in today's day and age of social media and politics and, and that kind of thing, is mm-hmm. if you can maybe follow a little bit more of the, whether it's comedians or uh, maybe some of the more lighthearted uh, accounts out there, maybe it'll provide a little bit more levity in your day-to-day. Absolutely. And and I think sometimes just simply taking things with a grain of salt or trying to look at the humor in situations is a very healthy thing to do. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, I do appreciate the time. Very much, uh, very fun to have a little bit of a levity in the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank, thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Keith Dobson is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary. Okay, bad dad joke time. What did the grape do when he got stepped on? He let out a little wine. <laughs> Uh, that's awful. I'm going to get eviscerated for that one. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.